Hello and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your well-being, including interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my five-minute food facts series. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host, a lawyer turned nutritionist with a passion for well-being. Before I introduce today's guest, I will take a moment to let you know that although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure or prevent injuries or medical conditions and is not a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today I am here with Dr. Brenton Hordaker, a scientific researcher and physiotherapist. Brenton is a National Health and Medical Research Council Early Career Research Fellow working with the Body and Mind Research Group at the University of South Australia. Brenton's research areas include neurological injury, such as understanding the treatment selection and recovery from such injuries and rapidly translating any research findings into clinical practice. Today, Brenton and I will be discussing stroke, a type of neurological injury that most people have heard of. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, in 2018, an estimated 387,000 people, that is 214,000 males and 173,000 females, had had a stroke at some time in their lives. I was interested to read that the estimated prevalence of stroke has declined slightly between 2003 and 2018 from 1.7 to 1.3% respectively. Hello, today I am here with Dr. Brenton Hordaker. So hi Brenton, welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast. Hi Amanda, how are you? I'm well, thank you. So Brenton, you um, are a physiotherapist and a scientific researcher. What led you to studying physiotherapy? Um, it's an interesting question actually Amanda. I um, originally started doing a Bachelor of Science and quickly realised that um, I really enjoyed working with people and that may not be the best way to do that. So I started to look at health-related degrees and transferring across to a different um, program. Um, it's actually a, a funny story. I was at the last minute, I, I had put preferences in to do physiotherapy um, as my first preference, but at the last minute, I thought I would change to medical um, radiography. And I went to change it online and it was too late. The preferences were already submitted, so I ended up going to do physiotherapy. <laughs> um, but it was probably a good move. I think it was um, my stars were aligning there because it's been, a, um, it's been everything that I want in a career. Like we've got a chance to work with people, help people um, with their health, help them get back to you know, improving their quality of life. Um, and it's also... I think the interesting thing is I mentioned about medical radiography. My current work involves a lot of neuroimaging. Yeah. So um, I've ended up combining sort of that, um, I suppose, technology imaging side of things with what I do as a physiotherapist as well. Well, that's ideal really, isn't it? So yeah. you mentioned you do a lot of uh, have a look at images and you obviously enjoy research because you've been involved in neurological research for several years. So what attracted you to research? Um, I think it was actually probably my third year physiotherapy neurorehabilitation placement. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really enjoyed the the content of that placement because it was um, uh, the supervisor at the time really challenged us to think about what we were doing with the patients that were coming through um, and the service we were offering and raising issues that made us think, like, why do we provide this treatment that we provide for someone who's had a stroke? Mm -hmm. Um, What evidence is there for that? And in a lot of cases, there's probably not very strong evidence. Um, So that really encouraged me to think about, you know, do I want to work full-time as a clinician? Do I want to mix that with some research, a combination of both as well, of course? Um, And I was fortunate enough that after my um, honours degree, I scored well enough and um, received a scholarship to do a PhD and I just really took the opportunities that were there. Um, and I think, again, I think sometimes things fall into place for you and, I, and yes. that has happened in my situation where, um, you know, I've got a real interest in the neuro side of things and there was opportunities to do that um, both with amputees, which is actually what my PhD was with, but then moving more into the stroke and brain injury field um, beyond that. So I, I really I enjoy the autonomy and the ability to answer the questions that I'm interested in and, um, yeah, just be at that forefront of science, but then trying to translate that to what, you know, a clinician would be interested in yeah. as well. I mean, that that really is sort of the crux of it. It's it's great to have scientific research, but if it can't be translated into helping patients, you know, you have to wonder what the point of it is. So that's, yeah. you know, you need that translation process. So. Yeah. You mentioned um, working with stroke victims and I imagine there are quite a broad range of neurological injuries but stroke is what I'd really like to talk about and focus on today because I think most people are familiar with what a stroke is or they've heard of it. So to set the scene, can you explain to us what is a stroke? So a stroke, I suppose in its very basic um, description is an interruption of blood supply to the brain. Now that can be caused by a blood clot, for example, that um, breaks off like a piece of a bit of plaque, goes up through the arteries and they get smaller and smaller as they go further into the brain. And at some point it, it becomes a complete blockage in that artery and blood supply can't go beyond that point. It can also be a bleed in the brain. Mm-hmm. So less common, it's about 20% of cases are a bleed and about 80% are a blockage. Um, and the other thing to consider, I suppose, is, you know, the brain is um, quite a vital organ, obviously. Yes. It's about 2% of our body weight. So it's actually relatively small in terms of our body weight, but consumes about 20% of the oxygen in the blood and the nutrients in the blood. Yeah, It's very resource intensive. And as soon as you remove blood supply, whether that's through a bleed or a blockage in the blood supply, then there can be pretty catastrophic, catastrophic um, consequences of that. Yeah, and we will talk about um, some of the consequences of a stroke. But before we do that, I'd like to have a look at some of the known causes that can contribute towards a stroke. And there are numerous ones. Some of them are things you can't modify, like, for example, your age or family history. But then there are things like lifestyle factors that can predispose you to being more likely to have a stroke. So could you tell us about what some of those factors are? Yeah, that, um, there's a very strong link between the heart and the brain, obviously, and we mm-hmm. talked about blood supply to the brain. So a lot of those that are important for cardiovascular health are important for brain health as well in preventing stroke. So things like blood pressure, 
um, history of smoking, obesity, alcohol intake, diets that are in uh, high in fat and high in salt content um, and high cholesterol as well um, are all factors that we know that can contribute to causing a stroke. Yeah, yeah, and general ill health. What is it specifically about obesity that um, can contribute to the chance of having a stroke? Obesity itself is linked, of course, to higher blood pressure. Yeah. Um, and what's causing obesity, so whether that's having the high fat and the high salt um, diets. Obesity, obesity itself it can also, um, I suppose, change the cardiovascular system and place more mm. stress on that. And then when you do that, we can, like we were saying, there's a link between heart health and brain health. So that then places the brain health at risk as well. Yeah. I guess there's a lot more pressure on the heart to have to pump the blood around a larger person, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of the one of the key things that's coming out at the moment is um, atrial fibrillation is a what they would call a silent killer. So that's a, an irregularity in the heartbeat, and that might be caused by increased pressure on the heart through things like obesity. Um, and it can actually cause like a, a clot to form in one of the chambers of the heart. And then when that clot does come out and shoot oh, off, it right. can go towards the brain. I think another really useful thing to talk about for people listening to this conversation is, are there some things we can look for? If we think somebody's having a stroke, I think the sooner you get medical in intervention, the better in terms of potential damage to the brain. So what are some of the things we can look out for to, if we think someone may be having a stroke? What are some of the signs? Yeah, so the Stroke Foundation has um, a really good acronym, which is FAST. Um, and it's good because FAST, you know, one of the letters is T for time because time is critical and it's all about being fast. But F, first of all, stands for face. So one thing you can do is look for drooping in one side of the face. You may need to ask someone, can you smile for me? And normally when we smile, both of our corners of our mouth would go up. But if someone's had a stroke, you might notice drooping on one side of their face. Um, arms as well. So normally you can it's a one-sided, a unilateral um, impairment. So if you ask someone to raise both arms out in front of them or out to the side and you notice that abnormally one is much lower than yeah. the other, then that's again a sign that something's wrong. Um, and speech. So if people are slurring words, um, not making sense, talking perhaps in gibberish as well, that could be a sign that there's a stroke. Time is critical, like we're saying with T. Um, the longer you wait, the more blood uh, brain cells that die as well. I think they, they say it's around 2 million brain cells die per minute. So in that situation, I assume you would call an ambulance? Yeah, absolutely. Get um, you know urgent medical attention. Yeah. Um, so an ambulance is certainly the way to go. Probably something that's a bit unique um, that has been trialled in Melbourne at the moment is that they, they have a stroke-specific ambulance okay. um, and they, they drive it around the city waiting on calls for calls that are you know meant to be strokes. Mm -hmm. And the advantage of that is they have some of the initial diagnostic equipment that can be prepared very early in the ambulance rather than waiting to even get to the hospital. Right. So, yeah. again, increasing the time or reducing the time, yeah. If someone is suffering a stroke do they themselves realize what's going on or not always not always um so uh, you know as a, an example i suppose um, i remember speaking to one of the clients who went to the football he was the timekeeper one of the local sanfl games was 
you know, getting quite emotional in the game, obviously, <laughs> getting a bit angry and perhaps his blood pressure went up, I don't know. <laughs> but he didn't realise, he started to slur his words, um, wasn't really making sense with what he was saying. And luckily there was a doctor for the football team at the, the club, um, but he had no idea at the time. Um, I know with my grandma, for example, she had what we call transient ischemic attacks. So that's very much like a stroke, but the blockage doesn't last very long in the blood supplies restored yeah. quickly. Um, and she would often say, she had a few of them, she would often say that she wouldn't realise she was slurring her words or speaking, you know, in gibberish, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. um, but it was my grandpa that would pick it up and call the ambulance. Right. Is that what we refer to as a mini stroke? Um, it's, we call them, I don't know if they're referred to as mini strokes, but it might be. Um, so they're strokes that, that they present as strokes, yeah. but they actually resolve very quickly themselves. So there can be an indication that a larger events such as a real stroke is, you know, yeah. soon to happen. Um, but certainly, like in my grandma's case, she had multiple TIAs and that's um, she never eventually had a stroke, but that may be a reflection of the medical management that she was placed under. Once right, they yeah. The so they are a warning sign. Mm. So we've talked about some of the factors that might predispose you to stroke, how to recognise it. So I guess the next thing that's really interesting to most people is how do you recover from a stroke? Can you recover from a stroke? So I think the complications of a stroke will obviously vary depending on how long the blood supply to the brain was blocked, as you've alluded to. But some of these symptoms can include um, paralysis or loss of muscle movement, difficulty talking or swallowing, memory loss, pain, change in behaviour and self-care ability, and there are more. But your research includes looking at factors <clears throat> to determine the most appropriate rehabilitation therapy from stroke. Um, and as part of that, you look at the physiological mechanisms that mediate recovery, and you also identify biomarkers that guide treatment selection. So we'll, we'll dig into that a bit and work out what that all means. But I think the first question is, to what extent can someone be rehabilitated from a stroke? I think that's a, it's a difficult question to answer. But initially, I would say that everyone has the potential to mm -hmm. show some sort of improvement, but the degree of improvement might vary from person to person. Sure. So it, it depends on a number of factors. And we mentioned about time being critical with the FAST acronym. Um, and part of that is that there's some very acute medical management now that can actually break up a clot, for example, and help restore blood supply to the, the part of the brain that has been affected, or they can retrieve clots as well. So the quicker you can do that, the quicker you can restore blood supply, the less damage there is to the brain, and of course, then the more potential for recovery. Even in those situations, it might be that people are left with some impairment, mm -hmm. and there's a need for recovery to help improve quality of life. And what we typically see is that over the first around three, maybe even out to six months after stroke is where you have maximum um, change in your recovery. So the biggest improvements. Um, and a lot of that does depend on you know, how much damage there is and what's yes. the available brain resources. But of course, yeah, absolutely. Maximum or biggest change and biggest improvements happen within those first few months. It does um, asymptote, if that's the right word, so sort of tail off over the subsequent months. But we have people that have come through for studies that have you know, shown 
pretty impressive improvements years after their stroke. So it's not to say that recovery is not possible beyond six months. It certainly is. We've got you know, great evidence to show that. But I do agree that the biggest change or the biggest improvements happen very early after stroke. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason, um, if we can, if we jump, I'll throw, give an example as to why that might be. Yes. Is we did a study recently looking at um, the brain's capacity for recovery after stroke. And it's this process called plasticity or neuroplasticity yeah. that people have heard of. And that, in very simple terms, it just describes the ability of the brain to change. So we've all got the capacity for neuroplasticity. If we think about children who learn to walk or learn to speak, that's all neuroplasticity. That's brain changes that happens during development. Um, if we think about what happens, um, you know, learning a new skill, so learning to play the piano, learning to play a guitar, that's neuroplasticity that changes brain activation patterns so that you can learn. So we've all got that capacity, but the, the, the magnitude or how big that capacity is changes throughout life. And it seems to be quite strong in early developmental phases, but it also seems to re-emerge as quite a strong period after injury. And one of those things is after stroke. So after a stroke, we've, we've found that certainly within the first three months, there's this enhanced capacity for neuroplasticity. And that probably explains some of that very strong, very early recovery that happens. It seems to be consistent across everyone that, that had a stroke as well. well. That's actually really fascinating. And do you have a hypothesis as to why there's that increased neuroplasticity post-stroke? Well, I think a natural response from the body, it's not anything that we do in terms of researchers or clinicians that seems to promote that. I think the role of the clinician there is to actually work with this window that Mm -hmm. we have to maximise recovery. Uh, In terms of the researcher, probably understanding that role and then perhaps even finding ways to prolong it or to reopen a similar window, and that's kind of where I'm working at the moment. Right, wow. Um, But the reasons, I think, are probably that the brain's had such a traumatic event has been damage that's occurred, that it's actually um, changed some of the the neural mechanisms, mechanisms, which you mentioned before, um, and it's allowed the brain, it's given it the opportunity to change the way that it operates. So there's been damage. It needs to compensate for that damage somehow because there's pathology that's changed what's going on in the brain. So it reopens or energises the brain to do that. That is really, our brain is quite amazing, isn't it? What it Yeah. Mm. Probably the biggest thing I've learned as a researcher with the brain is that it's not so much about what we do at the moment. There's probably not a lot that we do that might increase neuroplasticity. We can try to do it and, you know, we can do it to some very limited capacity. But what the brain does on its own is actually very impressive. It's better than anything that we can do experimentally at this stage. Yeah, I guess, though, understanding it is a big step towards helping with rehabilitation. Yeah. And one of the things that your research um, looks at as well is choosing the appropriate rehabilitation therapy. And when I read this, I thought, okay, that suggests to me that there are several different types of rehabilitation therapy available, I guess, depending on where the the brain injury occurs because obviously different parts of the brain affect us differently so can you talk us through what kind of rehabilitation therapy a stroke patient 
uh, is available, sorry, to a stroke patient? Rightly so, it's it's based off of the impairments. So when, when someone has a stroke, there's a, a whole medical team that goes through and will document, you know, do they have weakness of the arms or limbs? Mm. Can they, do they have coordination issues, do they have speech issues, do they have sensory issues, cognitive issues, et cetera, which we um, briefly touched on. And, and it's a lot related to where the stroke is, of course. And it can also be pre-morbid factors. So, you know, it might be age-related changes that have sure. contributed to that, of course. Um, so the therapy that's provided is often targeted at those impairments. Um, and it's helped to help restore function is the essential thing. From a physiotherapy point of view, I'm, I'm obviously interested in motor recovery yeah. um, and also sensory recovery as well. So speaking specifically to those domains, what we know is that the capacity for restoring function might depend on how much damage has been caused to stroke. So we can have two very similar presentations in the acute hospital admission. Mm-hmm. But their amount of damage that we can determine from things such as uh, neurophysiological and neuroimaging assessments might be different. And then that can tell us the likely recovery and that can then inform the type of therapy that you give to someone. So, for example, someone who has a, a pathway between the brain and the hand that is completely destroyed, there's no longer a connection between um, the, you know, the side of the brain where the stroke is and the hand, which is on the opposite side because the mm-hmm. pathways crossover it's very difficult for that person to regain use of that hand or arm it is possible in sort of very gross movements and when i say that it's more you know, movements from the shoulder and the elbow not so much right. fine movements. conversely you know when you can contrast that with somebody who still has a pathway that is intact at least to some capacity it might be partially damaged but the pathway is still structurally viable in some capacity they're more likely to regain those very fine finger movements and those hand movements. So really identifying who's going to benefit from targeted therapy at, say, hand movements, finger movements, or who's probably better off targeting more gross movements um, just to see if we can regain some movement of the arm is probably where we're looking at the moment. And I guess also just listening to that, the therapy must involve looking at what can be done so in a a positive spin on things so if someone's connection between their hand and their brain has been um, broken (laughs) um, maybe you look at helping them use their other hand or or something like that is that part of it as well yeah it is and um, it's not to say so again the brain's remarkable and my my supervisor says this um, we're, we're in Adelaide at the moment so she says there's more than more than one road to Elizabeth, which is north of where we are. Yeah, yeah. And um, it doesn't mean that the one pathway between the brain and the hand is damaged. Okay. That's it. The end of the story. It might. There are alternative ways. So I mentioned before that, say, if I have a left-sided brain stroke, it would be my right arm that's affected. There's actually a very small percentage, about 10% of the pathways that come from the right side of my head that go down to my right arm. So that, again, gives us a window or an opportunity to maybe look at um, stimulating that right side of the brain through different experimental techniques, but also trying to get some movement, whether that's just gross movement or even very remote finger movements coming back in that right hand. So it is possible. It tends to be much slower. And I mentioned before about a three to six week window Mm -hmm. or period. It actually, might for those people, recovery might be much more 
lengthy in, in that situation because sure. it's quite a big change that the brain goes through. Um, but you're right, it is, you know, in some cases it's going to be about um, compensating with the other hands. Yeah. Um, and even um, we haven't really touched on pain after stroke, but people can often get a lot of shoulder pain because the muscle has no tone um, in oh, it. Right. It won't hold, for example, the, the shoulder joint in place correctly, so it can drop down oh. um, and sort of managing that with various techniques that, that the clinicians use you know, to good effect at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I guess so you're talking from the physiotherapist's point of view, obviously, but I suppose speech pathologists would also be involved in some cases as well. Is 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 there a whole team generally? Yeah, absolutely. So it is. Um, yeah, it is a really interdisciplinary team yeah. that works at that rehabilitation level. It, it is based on impair, like the impairments that the person has. So if speech is an issue, then absolutely a speech therapist would be involved. Another thing, so speech, obviously we think about talking and communicating. Mm. Um, but but in how you interpret someone else's speech can be more of a cognitive issue, but that's something that we look at. Um, and even swallowing as well. So just drinking yeah. a glass of water can become quite difficult after a stroke. So looking at changing it to thickened fluids is, is something that the speech therapist um, might look at doing as well. Um, but they, speaking about, you know, those biomarkers, and we talked about the pathway between the hands and the arm, there's very good biomarkers as well for speech therapy. Um, so I think they're probably slightly more advanced even than motor people. Right. Well, let's, um, that's a good point to talk about biomarkers. So just mm. a very kind of general definition. It's a, a biomarker is a naturally occurring molecule gene or characteristic by which a particular pathological or physiological process or disease can be identified. And a really uh, common example of that would be body temperature is a biomarker for fever. Blood pressure can be a biomarker of a potential stroke, I believe. So you look at biomarkers in your research to help you guide treatment selection. So can you explain to us what are the biomarkers you're looking for and how does that link with the treatment? Mm. So for arm recovery after stroke, one of the best biomarkers is that pathway between the brain and the hands. So a couple of years ago now, there was an international panel that came together of stroke experts and they recommended that one in particular. Mm -hmm. So it is well established um, and well received within certainly the scientific community. We can get that biomarker in different ways. So it is, um, like you're saying, it's a measure that can inform potential for recovery. We can get that biomarker using, uh, by stimulating the brain with an electromagnetic pulse. And we look to see, does the finger twitch or does the arm twitch? Oh, right. Because that, that's a direct, you know, we're stimulating, activating the neurons um, in the cortex and then looking to see does a finger move in the, the stroke-affected arm. And if it does, of course, that pathway is probably intact because that's, that's how their connections work. Uh, another way to do it is to look at on neuroimaging, so your MRI scans that happen in the hospital. Where, where is the stroke? And is it overlapping with the, the pathway that we're interested in between the brain and the hand? How big is that? And how much damage has occurred to that? So we, we're currently hoping to get funding for a study that's looking at um, implementing a, a, what we would call an algorithm um, to help predict recovery after stroke. And it would use several of these biomarkers. Um, so it's actually 
the established algorithm that's used that was developed in New Zealand. Um, and it includes things such as the person's age, mm-hmm. the initial severity from their stroke, how much they can move their shoulder and their finger when they first come into the hospital. So the more you can move it, the less severe the stroke is, yeah, the more sure. likely the failure is. And then the, the fourth thing is that pathway between the brain and the hands. How how accurate is that at predicting? I mean, you always hear stories about people who defy the odds in certain ways, um, recovering from injury or disease. So do you ever see things like that where, you know, the presentation is such that this person should not be able to move their hand, but it ends up that they can? Do you see that kind of thing? Or Yes, we do. And I love those stories um, because I don't think what we've got is perfect. And you, you touched on it, how accurate is that algorithm? Mm-hmm. So in New Zealand, and it hasn't been tested in, you know, other models of healthcare here in Australia, it seems to be, I think it's 75 to 80% accurate. So there's still, you know, roughly a quarter of participants where it's not accurately predicting Mm -hmm. their recovery. Um, And I am particularly interested in that because I think we can do better. I mean, it's very unlikely we would be 100% perfect because the brain is so complex. Yes. And we bring into it so many other factors prior to stroke. So um, perhaps I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute because I've got a PhD student who's just submitted and done a really interesting study. So I'll go into that. Um, But I I get really excited about the ones that don't fit Mm. the prediction. And we did another study um, recently looking at those people. So people where we can't get a response when we stimulate a brain in the other hands, yet they've made really good recoveries after stroke. So what's happened there? Um, and what we tended to find is that that stroke affected side of the brain seems to increase its connectivity. So the activations um, and connections between different parts of the brain. So between a, a frontal part, which is probably more your premotor planning sort of stages, right. and a parietal part of the brain, which is actually behind where the motor bit is. So it almost goes around the motor right. part of the brain. And that's probably a reflection of neuroplastic changes that happen after stroke. So their brain has learned to compensate for that and it might be using alternative pathways to get signal down to the hand. So it is possible. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested in exploring that a bit more. And I guess that's something that you probably can't predict from an image, a neuro image. No. It's, I mean, they were brain activation studies. So I we, see. So you see yeah, so the, okay, you're seeing the pathway. Mm-hmm. But it, take, it, it wouldn't be able to be predicted very early after stroke. It seems to be a pattern of recovery they develop over time, and that helps them achieve the arm activity that, that you know, is beneficial for recovery. Um, I mentioned as well about sort of the pre-factors. You know, the brain's yes. so complex, it's unlikely where they get 100% prediction. Um, we had a... We have a PhD student who's just submitted and she looked at cognitive reserve after before stroke. And that's um, a measure of activities and lifestyle factors, education. So how active was your brain before the oh, stroke? Fascinating. And I think this is a really interesting area. And it did seem to be that those that had greater lifestyle engagements, greater activity, greater levels of education had a protective effect uh, in terms of their brain health and recovery. So even when, for example, comparing two people, just as an example, if we had, they had the exact same severe stroke, but one of them had a lot more what we call cognitive reserve, so lifestyle factors, physical, you know, activity, education levels were much higher. 
that person seemed to have a protective barrier that would help them um, in the recovery process and prevent the stroke having a significant impact in their life. That's really interesting. Do you think also as part of that, the cognitive reserve, is there a social factor in there? If there's someone who's had a stroke, who's had a, I don't know, got a loving family around them, a great social connections, and I guess a lot to sort of live for, for want of a better expression, does that seem to have an impact or is that too hard to know? No, um, I think clinically we would agree with that. Uh, Absolutely. You see patients that come through and have that very strong family support Mm. do well. They've got something that motivates them. Yeah. They've got people that push them to do the rehabilitation. Rehabilitation is difficult. It's very different to, um, in my very different to another hospital where the staff are there to help people, you know, get in and out of bed. In rehabilitation, we get them to do it all themselves because we want them to get home and be independent. And I think when you've got, that can be difficult. And something we haven't touched on is the fatigue after stroke, which is a big issue. makes it hard to do rehabilitation when you're fatigued all the time. So if you have family that can motivate you, you've got a purpose to get your life back on track, you've got them encouraging you when you're in rehabilitation, you've got a plan for life beyond stroke, Mm -hmm. I think they're all critical factors that influence your recovery. Yeah, I mean, that that does make sense to me. We talked a little bit about brain imaging. So can you tell me, how do you, in quotes, look at the brain in a research Mm. context? Um, What kind of technology and equipment is available to you? Um, There's actually quite a bit we can look at without essentially opening the head up. Opening the brain, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So with our research, we use probably three main techniques. So one is brain stimulation. So we can essentially artificially activate the neurons by stimulating the electromagnetic pulse. So it's um, like the car alternator in a way. It's an alternating magnetic field that creates an electric field within the brain, activates the neurons. If it's got a sufficient intensity, it will cause a a descending command to go down to a, a muscle in the hand. And we can look at excitability of pathways, how much activity there is. Um, with different types of brain stimulation, you can start to look at um, different neuronal activities and um, paths, et cetera. So there's mm-hmm. lots of things you can look at there. Um, the other probably main one is the, the neuroimaging aspect, which you have touched on. Um, so we've um, done quite a bit looking at what we what I call just pictures of the brain, whereas it's, it's essentially like a structural MRI image. So it's just a a three-dimensional picture, a very fine um, resolution, so one millimetre by one millimetre by one millimetre wow. size little cubes. Um, and we can look at different things such as the size of structures, how big the stroke is, where it is relevant to critical, you know, really critical things in the brain. Um, and then beyond that, we can start to look at different forms of imaging. So another structural-based one gives us information on the integrity of pathways so it, it actually looks at how freely a water molecule will move in space in, in the brain. Mm-hmm. And if it's restricted, it's probably restricted because of the axons um, within the brain. So that's actually what we call the white matter in the brain. Um, because white matter travels in its very uniform in its direction, um, going, for example, going down to the spinal cord. So when we do those sort of scans, we can get a very clear picture of the white matter structure um, within the brain. And that's that's sort of the, um, the highway, the information highway. So okay. information 
you know, it's developed out in the cortex and it's got to pass down to our spinal cord and out to our hands. And it goes through those white matter bundles or that highway to get there. Um, and then the other one is actually functional activation. So before getting to the highway, where does that information get generated? Um, and that's when we have people in a scanner, we ask them to clench their fist or open their hand. Um, and we can look at what areas of the brain activate. So we're, and we get that from blood um, changes, like the hemodynamic response is what it's called. So when, when you have more blood going to a certain area, that area is thought to be more involved in performing that activity or that movement. Well, that's interesting. Is that the kind of thing that when they're looking at um, well-practiced meditators and they look at um, which areas of their brain light up, is that a similar kind of technology? Yeah. Yep, yep, that would be. So um, it's been used in a lot of different applications. So you can ask anyone to do anything in that. MRI scanner, whether that be movement-based or thinking about things. Right, yes. Or okay. meditation, as you say, and just looking at how brain activity changes. Um, it's actually a relatively quick process these days as well. So within a, you know, a matter of minutes, we can get that information. And I guess it could be used um, for things like addiction as well to look at, you know, what lights up for people who are addicted to certain things. Is that another use? Yeah, yeah. yeah it is. Yeah, so... Um, I know they've certainly looked at it in different um, psychological conditions and addictions. Yeah. And it tends to be more deeper parts of the brain, which we call the subcortical structures, that might change in their activity pattern. But if it's long-term, it can change their structure as well. So, yeah, it's quite interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. In your research, have you seen any surprising results, things that you haven't expected? Um, yeah, we have. So I think the probably two that I'll talk about. The first one being, you know, these people that don't fit the standard. So when we say oh, they're not they're not likely to recover well, but then they do. Mm. Well, why is that? And that, yeah. I think that's critical, um, you know, critical information that we as researchers need to understand because it will help us improve that prediction, but it might actually open up new treatment options for some of those people that perhaps have those more severe strokes. Um, and I'm, yeah, as I mentioned, very keen um, to sort of understand that in greater detail. The second thing is we, we ran a study um, one or two years ago now where we gave people a brain stimulator to increase neural activation while they performed some exercises. Um, and we were targeting certain parts of the brain that were related to motor because we're looking at arm movements. But it was fascinating to me the other information that we were starting to get back. Yes, the their movement was changing, but people would report for the first time they could feel um, sensation in the hand, like hot and cold. They could feel that their hand changed, like it's um, their awareness of their hand changed in terms of how big it felt or oh. how much of a part of their body that it felt, which is quite an unusual um, thing to say. But what can happen after stroke is that the arm can become a little bit foreign to the person. It's, it's not their arm anymore. So for them to start to feel like that is now part of their body um, is a big change because they're more likely to continue using that arm yes. in the study. And then the other one was actually speech improved from doing this as well. Um, so it was, we started to document a lot of these, um, what we would call not expected changes um, or unusual changes to try and understand that a bit more. But I think it tells us a lot more um, about how complex the brain is because, you know, we, yes, we try and target motor, but 
that's connected to other things in the body as well. It's not just going to be a motor change. And I think one of the things that's important about um, noticing these unexpected results is if you're just going by the algorithm that says, oh, this person doesn't have a very good chance of recovery, it could limit the treatment because you might think, oh, well, they're not going to recover, so we won't do these things for that patient, whereas, you know, perhaps they will. So. Yeah, so uh, absolutely. And that's, um, you know, that's a common concern for clinicians when we talk about this algorithm. Um, and I think it's quite right as well, um, particularly when we are seeing people who buck the trend, if you mm. want to call it, uh, and, and do make recoveries. I think they don't recover. What, I mean, what is evidence they don't recover in the same way? So, for example, if they, those brain activation imaging studies Someone who has that intact pathway and we would, once they've recovered, if we put them in the scanner, they would activate probably a fairly standard part of the motor part of the brain because they've got the capacity in the brain to signal from there down to the hands. For someone who's completely damaged that pathway, they would have to activate different areas of their brain to then get the signal down to the hand. But it's interesting to find out what the those areas because then that can help us guide the treatment to help yeah, better support those people. Yeah. So yes, recovery is possible, but understanding how they do it is important. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense because you can apply that to another patient. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the future trends do you think then in um, neurological research? I think one of the biggest concerns that um, stroke rehabilitation researchers have is that there's so many negative trials in research at the moment. Right. So we try a lot of things um, and often at a group level they don't work. Uh, I think part of that might be that not everyone's the same. Not everyone's going to respond the same way to different treatments. We need to probably be a bit more careful about the physiology that's happening in the brain. So a therapy that works very early after stroke might not work at the more chronic stages and conversely the other way around. Um, I think for me, I'm quite interested in this plasticity change that happens over time. So one of my areas of interest is really around what we can do to prolong or perhaps reopen a window or a period where the brain is more plastic so that learning can accelerate. We know that learning is much better um, and more efficient when the brain is more plastic. So what can we do to enhance that? So I often combine a lot of different things. Mm. And some of the, I suppose, plasticity enhancing interventions that we look at at the moment are um, brain stimulation is one. We're actually looking at a, a virtual reality motor imagery task as well. Oh, cool. Um, a, yeah, I think that would be quite entertaining. I think that um, students got an excellent project. Um, and then another one is exercise because exercise seems to increase the capacity capacity for neuroplasticity in the brain but there's other things that people have looked at in terms of medications as well um, and dietary interventions etc so there's things that we can um, do to boost our brain capacity for learning that will then give us a better effect when we do our physiotherapy or our occupational therapy um, given the area of your research what would you say to people if they asked you what are some of the things I can do to look after my brain? Like, what do you do? <laughs> um, so I, I gave a really, um, I was surprised at the feedback I got because it was very encouraging. I gave a talk to 
um, some senior citizens in our community that was on healthy brain aging. And I think, you know, it's the same sort of messages that we give people about general health. Mm. But what people didn't realise is that the things they do for their general health will impact their brain health as well. And there is a very strong link between cardiovascular heart health and brain health, of course. So in terms of doing things such as eating well, exercising, sleeping well, um, they're all great for brain health. Probably the other side of the coin is... um, I mentioned before about cognitive reserve, so keeping your brain active throughout life. And that seemed to have a, a, a protective effect once you had the stroke in terms of recovery and how efficient that recovery was. So things that you can do to increase your cognitive reserve is keep learning. Yeah, Keep learning. It doesn't matter how old you are. doesn't matter what you're learning. Keep your brain active. And if that's doing Sudoku in the Sunday mail, then do that. Or if that's learning a new language or yeah. if that's, um, you know, socialising in a gardening club and learning about gardening, being physically active outdoors, do that. Um, what was pleasing for me about that talk at the, the Seniors Forum was that quite a few people came up and said, I'm going to make a lifestyle change. So they they went and joined walking groups wow. or they joined um, social groups so that they could get that social input in their lives. And just communicating with other people changes the way our brain um, activates, of course, as well. So make a change. You know, um, a, a saying I've heard recently is how do you eat an elephant? And, of course, you do that one bite at a time. So just <laughs> something that you enjoy doing. Not that we'd want to eat an elephant. <laughs> oh, I've never tried it. I think it's really about the tongue as well. But yeah. So I think um, I like the idea because it's when we say make these big changes in your life and your brain benefit, there's so much we could do um, that would that would be of benefit, but pick something that you enjoy because it's yeah. more likely to be sustainable and, you and enjoy you'll, it. you'll be more engaged. And mm-hmm. it sounds from what you're saying, it's never too late to, to no, keep no. learning and try something yeah. new. Yeah, I think the only time it's too late is when you just do nothing and it yeah. gets to the point that you've, you know, you wish you'd done it already. So just start now. It doesn't matter if you're 80 years old or, or eight years old. It's, um, you know, it's all beneficial for your brain. So we need to use our brain. Yeah, it's like a muscle. So you, is, need, yes. you need to use your muscle to keep it active and keep it healthy. You need to use your brain to keep it active and keep it healthy. And then if we start to wrap this up, because I'm sure you're busy and need to get back to your your day job, has COVID-19 impacted your work at all? Um, in terms of research, we've been very fortunate. The, the hospital here has been very supportive. Um, it was a little bit of an interruption in terms of mm-hmm. um, the ward that we recruit from actually moved um, and it was a little bit more challenging to recruit. Um, I think otherwise not overly impacted. Probably what is interesting is I think it might change the scope of stroke research a little bit in that there is some indication coming out that COVID-19 might increase the incidence of stroke. Yes, I did read that. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. So yeah. do you have a view on that? or it's, it's I don't know. know. It's, yeah, it's early days. Yeah. Um, and probably my initial thought would that might be related to cardiovascular changes. I mean, yeah. there are, I mean, we know that it changes, say, lung function, which is linked to cardiovascular system, which is then, of course, linked to the brain. However, I think I've seen interesting work where it's actually showing very early brain changes in someone who's had COVID-19, which is not what you 
would necessarily expect to happen straight away if it's just a, a lung change. Mm. So I think interesting things to look at there in the future. Yeah, I, I feel like we don't fully understand yet the extent of how COVID-19 can impact the body's systems. I mean, as you say, it's early days and some people get really sick and others don't. Like it's a bit, it's a mis, you know, mysterious kind of mm. disease. Mm, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, it's, we need to not look at a little bit off topic, but not look at just say um, survival rates or death rates from COVID-19. I think the impact of it is much more significant in human health and whether that's brain or other yeah. um, health systems as well. And I guess we don't know yet what the long-term impacts are, but, I mean, hopefully there's a lot of resources going into looking at COVID-19, so we should yeah. get some good information. Yeah. Mm. yeah so, absolutely. so Brenton, who inspires you? Um, great question. I think probably the, the enthusiastic participants in our study, so people that voluntarily give up their time to help and come in and they might not be receiving they might be in a trial and they don't know if they're receiving the real treatment or not they might be in more of an observational study and not there's no treatment involved that their reasons for participating are often i just want to help people like me in the future yeah great and i think that's um it's incredibly humbling for someone like me who is thankful that they've given up their time mm. um, and i can really appreciate how difficult it must be for them. Some of them travel a long way to come into our research facilities. They, have, they suffer a lot of fatigue. Mobility is a real challenge. Uh, financially, they may not be that well off because they can no longer work. So it's not an easy decision to say, yeah, I'll be in a study. But to do that willingly and repeatedly um, and be a real advocate for people in their um, community to help understand stroke um, and just to make life better pe for people in the future who may experience a stroke or any other brain injury as well. Mm. Well, that, that is very inspiring, people helping mm. others and creating that sense of community. Mm. And so the final question I like to ask all my guests is, if you could recommend two things that all people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? Great question. Um, I think... Going back to some of those things that we talked about before for general health, it's important not only for general health, and we should do it for a range of reasons, but it's important for brain health. So one is looking at your lifestyle factors. I think looking at, you know, are you getting enough exercise? Are you, are you managing some of the simple things like your blood pressure, for example? Do you need to have a, a GP visit and just and work that out or a dietary change that might help with that? The second thing is think about your brain health. Um, and what ways can you perhaps increase your brain activity? So perhaps when you're sitting around at home and you're wondering what to do, instead of just having a, a watch of the TV, maybe look at other ways you could do something that really challenges your brain, um, makes you think, and whether that's learning a new skill or a language or uh, engaging in something that's new for you. So like I mentioned, gardening clubs, I think are a great mm. thing as well. Finding a way to make your brain challenge um, give it something to learn um, and hopefully that will benefit you you know in the future whether that's just through general aging as well or whether that's something that happens um, if it unfortunately might oh thank you well that's very good advice and 
something for people to take on board if they want to give themselves the best chance of having a healthy brain. Brenton, if someone is interested in following you, what is the best way for them to do that? So I'm at the University of South Australia. Um, you can certainly look up my university page, which is brenton.hordacre, which is H-O-R-D-A-C-R-E. Um, and my email is on that page. It also links to my Twitter and my LinkedIn profile. So more than welcome to follow me. Excellent. Send me an email. Um, and I think I even have my phone number on there if you wanted to chat. <laughs> I'll, I'll put a link to that yeah. page in the show notes. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on today. That was really interesting. And I, I particularly liked hearing about the neuroplasticity. I think that's mm. you know fascinating and hopefully holds a, a key to some improvements in stroke recovery in the future. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And that was Dr. Brenton Hordaker with some very useful tips on how to keep our brains healthy. Talking to Brenton made me feel like Neurological research in Australia is in very capable hands indeed. Thank you very much for listening to my podcast today. I do hope that you found today's interview interesting or inspiring. If you did, please share the podcast and tell your friends about it. And if you could take a minute to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it will help people find my podcast. If you would like to subscribe to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, you can subscribe on all good podcast providers like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Spreaker, Overcast, iHeartRadio and Google Podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Please do follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast and check out my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com where you can contact me via the contacts page and suggest topics you'd like to learn more about or people you'd like to hear interviewed, and I will do my best to deliver that to you. Producing the podcast is a labour of love. It has become my full-time job, which I dedicate a lot of time, money and effort towards. If you enjoy my podcast and would like to support it, I would be so grateful. You can make contributions via my Patreon page, which is still a bit of a work in progress, I must admit, or via PayPal from the support page on my website. I'll put a link in the show notes, so please do check that out. Another way you can support my podcast is by purchasing a book from the book reviews page on my website. If you click the Amazon link there, at no extra cost to you, I will receive a small commission when you buy a book. Thank you very much for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.